Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Jared joined Joe and his deputies in their manhunt for Greg Vivian, the main suspect in Judith Dalton's murder. On two different occasions during the manhunt, Bill Bannister blatantly ignored Joe's instructions not to fire his weapon, almost shooting a local logger and their main suspect. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Eve, did Bill log out? Yes, Sheriff. Eve's kind brown eyes, her short white hair, and her quiet demeanor were deceptive. She didn't miss anything that went on in the station. Her face held that conscious, puzzled expression that Joe had come to know all too well. She knew something was wrong. He came in and filled out a report and placed it on your desk. He left about half an hour ago. He didn't seem in very good spirits. Yes, I know. Eve paused. Joe could feel the question she was about to ask coming. He waited, wondering how much he should tell her. What happened out there, Sheriff? Joe studied her face a moment longer before he responded. He knew she would find out anyway, if not from him, then from one of his deputies. She was the one person everyone felt comfortable talking with. She had a way of often getting information from a person without their knowing they were relinquishing it. At times, he had felt envious of that particular talent of hers. Bill fired his weapon at someone up on the ridge. Up on the ridge? Who was it? At first, I thought it was Dudley Meacham. He was up there marking trees, but now I don't think so. When I pulled Bill aside and asked him about it, he said he wasn't shooting at Dudley, but at someone in camouflage moving among a stand of trees behind Dudley. Dudley was marking a group of trees some 60 or more yards from where we were. The stand of trees Bill drew my attention to had to have been at least 50 yards beyond where Dudley was working. There were seven of us there besides Bill. No one else saw anyone but Dudley. So you think he was lying, Sheriff? Perhaps he shot at Dudley and then realized his mistake and tried to cover up what he'd done. I would like to think not. But you don't know. He said he wasn't. Was it Greg Vivian? That's just it. He didn't know who it was, but he fired anyway. It could have been a hunter. Or it could have been Vivian. And no one else saw anyone. No one else saw anyone other than Dudley. Did he hit anyone? 
We hiked up to that stand of trees, but we didn't see any sign of anyone having been there or any trace of blood. As far as I could tell, we were the only people out there, us and Dudley Meacham. Well, thank heaven for that. Joe glanced away for a moment. But there's something else bothering you, Sheriff. What is it? When we came down the mountain to Baldwin's Hollow to search the hunting camps, it happened again. What do you mean? A man came running out of the last camp and headed toward the woods. Bill fired at him, even though I'd expressly told him not to, only 40 minutes before up on that ridge. Joe's brows furrowed, and he said in a low voice, I'm going to have to talk with him tomorrow morning, and we're going to sort this whole thing out one way or another. Eve looked down at her desk for a moment and then looked back up at him. Whatever you decide to do, I know you'll be fair, Eve added. Joe nodded. They both knew what the unspoken consequences could be. Further discussion wasn't necessary. Whatever he decided, he felt he would have Eve's support, and that counted for something. Eve, I want an all-points bulletin out on Greg Vivian. He should be considered armed and dangerous. I want every police officer from here to Quebec to have a picture and a description of him. Debbie Sue's country store was a one-story white clapboard building. It was four miles north of Grover's Notch. It stayed open late into the evening. Its fluorescent light and two neon beer signs in the window stood as a beacon against the darkness, drawing people from the surrounding community. The store carried the name of the owner's wife, Deborah Sue Campbell, Debbie Sue to her family and friends. She had died a year before the store was built, built with a combination of the money Debbie Sue and her husband Lyle had saved throughout their 10 years of marriage, and the money that Lyle received from the life insurance policy they both had purchased after signing on to work at Grace's Mill. Lyle Campbell had never remarried. He said it would have been like profiting from his wife's death. Everyone said Debbie Sue's name every time they mentioned a store, and for Lyle it was a way of keeping her memory alive, better than some fancy headstone in the cemetery. Sunday was Lyle's favorite day. It was when the store was the busiest. People came in for the fresh pastries and hot coffee, and that's when Lyle usually got the fresh gossip. When Bill Bannister pulled into Debbie Sue's, darkness had fallen. The store's bright fluorescent light spilled down the cement steps and across the dirt lot. Bannister parked his forest green pickup. Stepping out of its cab with a slight stagger, he walked up the front steps of the store. Pulling open the wooden door, he was greeted by the familiar muted sound of a jangling bell and the warm, musty smells of the store which seemed to emanate from the wood of the ancient worn mahogany counter, which had absorbed over the years the smells of the proverbial wheels of rat-trap cheese beneath the old cracked glass bell-shaped cheese keeper, the gallon glass jars of pickled eggs and sausages at one end, and homemade cookies, fried pies, and yeast donuts in a glass-enclosed shelf at the other end. These items were as much a part of Debbie Sue's as the owner, Lyle Campbell, who sat on a tall stool behind the ancient counter. He looked up from the newspaper he was reading. Evening, Bill. Lyle. Bill walked to the back of the store, where the soda and beer were kept, opened the glass door, 
and pulled out a six-pack of beer. He brought it to the front counter. Bill knew that Lyle had to be getting on in years, but he didn't look any different than he did when Bill was a boy coming through the same door for soda pop instead of beer. Lyle was sitting in exactly the same spot, wearing his usual plaid green flannel shirt and brown corduroy pants. His thin white hair was parted and combed over neatly to one side. He wore gold wire-frame glasses. The persona he projected was friendly, grandfatherly. Everyone knew Lyle. Most people stopped by his store at least once a week to talk with him. Even before his wife's death, the old man collected stories and gossip the way boys collected trading cards. He had a story or a piece of gossip on just about everyone who lived in Grover's Notch. Bannister put the six-pack of beer on the wooden counter, and placing both hands on the worn wood, he leaned forward and looked Lyle directly in the eye. It didn't bother him that the old man could smell the alcohol in his breath. He was off duty. Besides, he didn't think Lyle would tell anyone that he'd already had a few drinks. The tempting thing about Lyle was that he never divulged the source of his information. That was his unspoken rule. That was why people continued to use Lyle to spread their stories and gossip. If asked, his response was always the same. I forget who told me. But the interesting thing was that he would never forget the story or the piece of gossip. Lyle's dark eyes darted around the store, as if to make sure that no one else was there. Bannister waited for the question he knew Lyle was dying to ask. The old man smiled slyly and winked. Heard you boys had yourself some excitement up there in Baldwin's Hollow today. Yeah, that we did, Lyle. Shame you didn't catch the bastard. I could have stopped him dead in his tracks twice if Joe hadn't interfered. What do you mean, Bill? I had him in my sights up on the ridge. I got off a shot. I don't know how I missed the son of a bitch, but before I could get off another shot, Joe jumped all over my ass. He said he wanted Vivian alive to stand trial. Then I almost had him a second time, in Baldwin's Hollow, as he was making a break for it, coming out of one of the camps, headed into the woods. But Joe spoiled my shot, made me lose my concentration. He seems to think that butcher has rights. After what he did to that little girl, that baby killer doesn't deserve to live. Why should that little girl's mother have to sit in the courtroom and listen to that butcher's fancy lawyer try to get him off? Tell me, Lyle, do you think that's fair? Lyle shook his head slowly, no. Goddamn right, Lyle. Joe should have let me shoot him down like the rabid dog he is. It's too bad this state doesn't have the death penalty. The most he'll get is life in prison. He'll still be breathing and that little girl will still be dead. I don't think that should be allowed to happen. Well, you're not the only one who thinks like that, Bill. There are a lot of people in this town who feel just the way you do. Lyle bent to one side and pulled a brown paper bag out from underneath the register. It sat right next to his loaded shotgun. He reached into the bag, unscrewed the cap, and without saying a word, handed the bag across the counter to Bill. Don't mind if I do, Lyle, Bill said with a smile. This time tomorrow, I'll probably be unemployed. Joe will probably want to have a talk with me first thing in the morning about taking those shots at Vivian. Bannister took a deep drink from the bottle, trying to hold the burning cough in, and handed the bottle back to Lyle. 
Joel's going to fire you for taking those shots at Vivian? I don't know for sure, but I have that feeling. That hardly seems fair. Tell me about it, Bannister said, reaching into his pocket for the money to pay for the beer. How much do I owe you? Lyle ignored his question and asked one of his own, unwilling to allow the conversation to end quite yet, and determined to take advantage of Bill's inebriated state. Did Joe have that, well, I won't say the N-word, I don't want to be politically incorrect, that black fellow with him, the one who's supposed to be another hot-shot detective from the city? Bill, his eyelids heavy now from the bourbon, his body swaying a little, replied, Say it, Lyle. God damn it. That's the trouble. People are afraid to say what they mean. That's why we have baby killers like Vivian hiding among God-fearing people like us. If you want to say nigger, say it. You're damn right he was there. Bill leaned forward. How much do I owe you? You don't owe me a damn thing, Bill. It's on me. That's what I like about you, Lyle. You always were a stand-up kind of guy. You have a good evening now. Bannister said as he picked up the beer and walked carefully toward the front door. Bill placed the six-pack on the hood of his truck. The drink he had with Lyle and the beers that he had earlier were quickly having an effect on his ability to coordinate his movements. He shoved one hand into the pocket of his tight-fitting jeans, searching for his keys, and pulled them out. He fumbled with them and watched helplessly as they fell through his uncoordinated fingers to the hard ground. Ah, shit, he exclaimed as he bent down carefully, head spinning, slightly listing to one side to recover them. He opened the door to his pickup, and grabbing the beer from the hood, he climbed in and set the six-pack on the seat next to him. He pulled a beer from the carton, opened it, and took a long swallow, thinking about what had happened up on that ridge. I don't know what Joe was talking about. I'm always professional. Everything by the book. He acts like I put the rifle to my shoulder and just fired at the first thing that moved. I'm no goddamned out-of-stater. In spite of the beer and the bourbon, he could remember what he'd seen up there as if it were just an hour ago. was the damnedest thing I've ever seen, he said to himself. I'll admit at first I thought my eyes must have been playing tricks on me. It took a while before what I was seeing really registered. Vivian almost had me with that disjointed movement, that spinning. I've never seen anyone move like that. He stopped. He took another swallow of beer, sat back in his seat, and rubbed the top of the bottle against his lips. He took a deep breath, his eyebrows furrowed, and he leaned his head back against the headrest. He stared out the window and into the darkness of the night. He felt that there was something different when he saw Greg Vivian running through the woods in Baldwin's Hollow. He thought for a long moment. Oh, I'm just too drunk. He opened the glove compartment and rummaged around inside until he found the package of cigarettes he had put there a year ago. That's when he had promised Hunter he would stop smoking. Ah, yes, he said, tearing the cigarette pack open. He placed a stale cigarette between his lips. He threw the open pack onto the dashboard and lit up. The tip glowed bright red, and he smiled closing his eyes as he inhaled. He coughed several times as he felt the first sting of the stale smoke rushing into his lungs. The satisfaction that smoking gave him returned like an old friend coming back to visit. There are some things that just shouldn't be separated, like peanut butter and jelly.
cake and ice cream, and goddammit cigarettes and beer. He exhaled slowly. With the beer bottle in his left hand, he raised it and drank freely. He lowered the bottle and still holding the cigarette between the index and middle fingers of his right hand, and with his eyes closed, he inhaled slow, real slow, savoring the taste of the stale tobacco. Like Hunter and me, we never should have been separated either, he muttered, removing the cigarette and with the tip of his tongue licking the corners of his mouth. That was his way of finding out how drunk he was. If he could still feel each corner of his mouth, he was good for at least another six-pack. If the corners were numb and turned up at the end in a slightly frozen smile, he shouldn't be out driving around. He should be in bed with somebody, soft and warm, preferably Hunter. He looked in the rearview mirror. There was that frozen smile, but he wasn't in bed with Hunter. He was out driving around. It's all that goddamn Vivian's fault. When I find him, I'm going to teach that boy not to come between me and what's mine. He took another gulp of beer, his cigarette still cradled between his index and middle fingers, closed his eyes and leaned his head back against the headrest. He remembered when he first noticed Hunter. A smile came across his face. He had noticed Hunter, really noticed her. When she was walking down Route 3, late one evening, she was wearing a pair of cut-off jean shorts that exposed just a little of each of her ass cheeks, a pink tube top, and a pair of brown sandals. A rout of wolfish teenage boys crammed into an old Chevy pulled up beside her. The back door flew open, and a tangle of long, strong arms reached out like a mass of waving tentacles to pull her into the car. She was trying to fight them off. They hadn't noticed him coming up behind them. He turned on his lights and siren, and the massive arms retreated into the old Chevy, all but one. That arm pushed her away from the car. The tires kicked up dirt and gravel, and the car screeched away. She fell backwards and went head over heels into the ditch along the shoulder of the road. He could have pursued the Chevy, but instead stopped to make sure that Hunter was all right. He offered her his hand and easily pulled her out of the ditch and back onto the road. She readjusted her tube top. The nipples of her rounded breast pressed taut against the soft-knit material. She caught him staring at her. She smiled tightly and asked him in a defiant tone, Do you like what you see? He ignored her question. You shouldn't dress like that and walk alone on the highway at night. Some guys around here, once they get a six-pack in them, can get out of hand. And then there are the weirdos. I'd hate to see you get hurt, he said as she brushed the dirt from the back of her shorts. She glanced at him and smiled again. This time, her smile was warmer. How old are you now? Fifteen or sixteen? I'm sixteen and a half. Her soft, warm brown eyes just barely held back the tears and betrayed her tough girl attitude. She looked so innocent, so defenseless, and so vulnerable. She was not quite a woman, but not really a little girl either. Her body held the soft blush of youth, but those eyes of hers were ageless. There was something mysterious about her, almost bewitching. He felt himself being pulled in. He knew it was wrong, but he couldn't help himself. Get in the cruiser and I'll take you home. She hesitated briefly, her eyes searching his. Finally, she said, why? I'm only going to leave again. 
Aren't Bud and Doris going to worry about you? She turned on him, her anger clearly visible. Worry about me? Since her accident at the mill, all Doris worries about is if she has enough smokes and those little pills the doctor gave her to dull the pain. All she talks about is how she can still feel her two fingers that were cut off. If you know Bud, you know that he's drunk by now. And I'm not going home so he can grab and paw me because he's so drunk he thinks I'm someone else. You want me to have a talk with him when we get there? No, because I'm not going there. If you really want to do me a favor, you'll take me to Baldwin's Hollow. Some of my friends are having a party. Were those some of your friends in the car just now? She stared at him for a moment and then turned away, silent, her arms folded beneath her breasts. Like I said, if you want to give me a ride somewhere, take me to the party. That's quite a ways from here. If you're not going to give me a ride, I'll just walk. Just like that, you probably won't be walking for long. She turned back, smiling. Are you married? Yes. She didn't say anything. She just looked at me, smiled, real sexy-like. She knew she had me. She opened the front door of the cruiser and slid onto the front seat, he whispered to himself. And now, a preview of our next episode. Following a dressing down by Joe after firing twice at someone he thought was Greg Vivian, an intoxicated Bill Bannister broods about the likely possibility of losing both his job as a town deputy and his chances of achieving bigger and better things. Why is Bill Bannister so set on making sure that Greg Vivian doesn't survive long enough to be taken into police custody? Does it really have to do with the Dalton girl's murder, or is it something else entirely? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.